0: A couple of years ago, um, I finished my graduate work at Florida State University, and like a lot of graduate students, including Dr. Crabb, who went to med school, uh, you discover some bad news at the end of that occasion, which is your student loans come due. And then you get this really abrupt letter from the lenders, and they go, um, y- yeah, we've deferred these payments till now, and then Carolyn and I found out that they wanted $600 a month And that was how quickly we had to pay this loan back. And we didn't have $600 at the end of our month. Um, And and so we were were a little frightened of the experience and uh, began to pray. A year earlier, we had purchased our home. We had bought it at the very bottom of the real estate market in 2012 when no one else wanted to buy homes. And we finally found one we could afford. And uh, unbeknownst to us, over the course of the next year, the market had turned around and the value of our house had gone up, and so our bank allowed us to refinance the house and stuff our student loan into that, and it only raised our monthly payment like 90 bucks. And we were just like unbelievably amazed. I mean, the relief that washed over us. And perhaps you've experienced this. You know, you've had a moment where somebody's made a generous contribution to your life in some way, or you've just had an experience where financially you, you got your head above water for the first time in a long time and you could finally breathe uh, imagine if you will and it's not that difficult to imagine how much joy we would have if somebody came along today and just paid off all your credit card debt or imagine the freedom of having somebody tell you that uh, a, a loved one had left you enough resources in their will to pay off your mortgage i mean these are the kind of things we would be blown away and grateful and thankful and then if somebody came along and you know, we realized that we'd loan them 50 bucks once and we would feel ourselves or we seemingly should feel a willingness to go, you know what, somebody just paid off my mortgage. You know, keep the 50 bucks, enjoy that very much. This is at the heart of today's message and particularly Jesus' parable of the unmerciful and ungrateful servant. We all know the simple joy of saving a little money whether it is a a Black Friday sale coming soon to a neighborhood near you, or the deal of the century that you get on Craigslist, uh, what we see in today's message from Scripture is that this sense of relief from our debt is central to our ability to carry out the Lord's commands. You know, it's not uncommon for a minister to... Uh, come up to a section of scripture that is difficult to interpret. Uh, It's not unusual to come into something and see uh, while you're doing your study for a sermon. This is why denominations and Christians have disagreed about certain things for centuries and centuries and centuries. This morning, I am not teaching through one of those passages. It is crystal clear And this brother gets it. It is crystal clear to anyone who understands the gospel that Jesus is reaffirming through this parable his command to us and his teaching on prayer. We are to forgive others as we've been forgiven. I suspect that the reason Jesus has left little room for misinterpretation is because we are both prone to justify our unforgiveness towards others, And also because forgiving others is possibly the most difficult thing we do as humans. It's just that hard. And so Jesus doesn't give us the luxury of going, well, you know, the scriptures will look gray in this area about whether or not I have to forgive this person. (laughs) There's no gray area on this one. And this morning, (laughs) I have a real strong sense that I'm ironically teaching something that is going to be really hard for us to hear. And I... I guess I didn't realize that till halfway through our first service this morning because I thought, you know, this is some really good material and I'm seeing a lot of really frowning faces. So I'm either doing a really bad job at preaching today or this is a whole lot heavier than I would bargained for. So buckle up. You may not enjoy this sermon very much. <laughs> the Lord's Prayer says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, we often interchangeably use the words transgressions or trespasses or sins, and we use them interchangeably with debt. The imagery from today's scripture reading is financial, but the essence of what we're talking about is the debt we feel owed when we've been wronged by others, and then ultimately the debt we owe God for the sins that we've committed against Him. We all struggle to forgive those who have hurt us. And that struggle was evident even in Jesus' closest friends because it's Peter's question to Jesus in Matthew 18 that got this whole ball rolling in the first place. He says or asks of Jesus in Matthew 18, How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? This seems like a reasonable question. It even seems generous to me. You know, if somebody hurts you once, twice, do I I have to give them seven, you know, issues of forgiveness? Is that what I owe them? And Jesus' response seems, well, frankly, unreasonable to my human nature. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or in some translations, 70 times seven, which would jack it up to 490. And all I can say is, that just seems unreasonably generous. Oftentimes, the reason I feel that way is because I've lost sight, as maybe you could say today, you have lost sight of how much you have been forgiven. There is something that keeps you and I from forgiving others. Really, I've thought through this. There are three different things. I carried on this conversation this week about why we often don't uh, forgive. I've asked some of my students, and they said, well, one was they, they feel entitled to be angry and unforgiving as they proudly thought they couldn't or wouldn't do what somebody else had done to them. That was one reason why they couldn't forgive, or they refused to forgive. Another one was they refused because they felt proud that they should have to let somebody get away with it. There was a sense of, you know, that's beneath me. You shouldn't be able to get away with this. And then related to that, when we feel the absence of their groveling for forgiveness to us, they should suffer and we should be the ones to punish them. You know, there's there's a sense in us. We think, their justice must be meted out here. And so we're going to hang on to this unforgiveness. But as many have said through the ages, unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping another will suffer and die. We're only hurting ourselves. So if historically there has been virtually no debate about the meaning of this passage, And the scriptures are that clear. What is really at the root of our inability to forgive others as we've been commanded to do? And that's what I hope to do by looking at the parable today. And the first takeaway I have for us is this our total debt is clearly not in mind. What keeps you and I from being willing to forgive others as we've been forgiven? we have somehow or another managed to delusionally think we're really not that bad. Or we have conveniently forgotten just about everything bad we've ever done. I have these moments that are just horrifying where I'll realize something I said or did as many as 20, 30 years ago, maybe even back to my teen years, and I'll go, oh God, I'm so sorry. But then I realize, wow, God has forgiven me of so much. He's forgiven me of stuff I never even asked him forgiveness for. I mean, there are things in my life, I'm just incognizant of how painful I have been in people's lives. And I'm overwhelmed by that. And and then I think, wow, your grace is sufficient. Our debt, our total debt, what we have had paid off by Jesus, the Christian oftentimes does not have this clearly in mind. And so let's read the passage again, verses 23 through 25. The Lord says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Who wished to settle accounts with his servants? When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents, and since he could not pay, his master offered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had, and payment to be made. Now, I wanted to lead with these two verses to demonstrate that. Within even the parables of Jesus, there is a sense that justice is important. And particularly that the master, and of course God the Father is this person in the parable, has every right to expect that people would repay what they owe. And in a moral sense, we have every right and we have every expectation that God will one day judge the living and the dead. This has been the profession of faith of Christians through the millennium. One day Jesus will come, and we will have these accounts settled. And one of us, all of us, will come to Him and owe Him ten thousand talents. Now, the numerics of this are significant. Uh, it's not you know it is not uh, unintentional that Jesus used ten thousand talents. This combines both the largest Greek number with the largest unit of currency in their system. So basically, it's like saying gazillion. I mean, you know, we don't even have a number that's that big, right? So we'd have to go to, I think trillion is the, is the most common use. So it would be like $1,000 trillion. Whatever the top number we would use linguistically versus the top currency we could produce, this is what Jesus is saying. He's trying to say The debt of sin that we owe God is just enormous. It's bigger than we can actually describe using the terminology of our day. And then later, when we use the description of somebody who sins against us, that number isn't insignificant. A hundred denarii is a month's wages. But if you do the math in that currency, it's one dollar. 600,000th of what the other person owed. That's 600,000 times. That's just enormous. And so it makes a lot of sense why the master would be so dumbfounded that somebody would go away and not remember just how great the master, how forgiving the master had been. The moral of the story is that you will not forgive others unless you have in mind that you've been forgiven many, many more times than others who've sinned against you. Here's an exercise that I've, from time to time, with greater levels of success at certain times than others, uh, used in my own life to help me combat unforgiveness. I would encourage you to make a list of things that others have done to you that you are having difficulty forgiving them for in your heart. Then I'd like you to flip the sheet over and start another list, and this would be a list of the things for which God has forgiven you. Now, here's the rub. The first list you might actually finish, because there's probably a finite number of people that when their name comes up, you go, or you get that sense in your stomach, oh, I hate that person. Ah, that person's awful, and you start, like, venting about them. That's how you know that there's unforgiveness in your heart. When the impulse, whenever they they come into the conversation, you find yourself making fun of them or, or saying something negative about them or just feeling like, you know what, this person I could do without. See, at that moment, you and I are faced with the reality that we have unforgiveness in our heart. There's a finite number of people in my life that I could say, I'm having difficulty letting go of that. On the flip side, there's not enough paper in the world for me to list the number of ways I've offended God. I mean it. I could go to Staples, and they wouldn't have enough boxes of paper, assuming I could remember everything I'd done to sin against God and all the things I've done to sin against others. See, Orthodox Christianity maintains that a proper understanding and appreciation for what Jesus has done for us requires recognition of the depths of both of our sinful actions and our sinful nature. You see, apparently both our actions and our nature are so offensive to the Father that Jesus had to be crucified. Now, if our sin wasn't that bad or could have simply been ignored, then what kind of God would send Jesus to be crucified? I mean, how cruel is that? I've heard people lament that you know, orthodox Christians and their notions of sin and the need for, for, for punishment for sin, that these are just cruel and makes God into this, you know, it's really wrong kind of evil taskmaster. The flip side of that is even worse. It's, okay, God's saying, your sin doesn't matter, I don't care, it's not a big deal to me, but you know what, I'm going to kind of design that Jesus Christ would have to be crucified. I'm just going to let him get tortured, but it doesn't really accomplish any significant purpose. What it does is kind of gives you a symbolic view of what love really might be. There are a lot of ways you could do that without letting somebody be tortured. So the, the gospel is very clear that our sins in Christ have not just been done away with or coded over. They've been forgiven completely, totally. Now, through the influence of unbiblical thinking or perhaps social psychology or weak Christian theology, there are many who believe that they are not any longer by nature sinful or that their sins are really no big deal. And there is a line of thinking that some so-called Christians have bought into that says that, you know, you were taught evil and wrong when somebody told you that by nature you are selfish and sinful. I would say not only does Scripture teach that, but all you have to do is raise a couple of toddlers and find out that's true. You don't teach kids how to lie. That comes naturally. You don't teach kids how to be selfish. They learn that by nature. That requires no training at all. The antithesis is true. You have to actually teach your kids. Now, do we tell the truth? Okay, do we hit our little sister? No. I mean... Honestly, I never, ever taught my son how to be rough with his little sister. That came by nature because he's a boy. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of other things that are wrong about the way we behave that come equally by nature. For a second there, let me assume that if you claim to believe the scriptures are true, there are still going to be reasons why you may not feel very moved or grieved by the totality of your sin debt. And that's a debilitating thing because today's passage shows a direct correlation between our recollection of the totality of what was forgiven us and our ability to forgive. There's some people think, what are you, just morbid and sick? You want to sit around and think about bad crap that you've done for your life and, you know, making lists? I mean, let it go. It's in the past. Kuna matata. You know, I mean, I'm like, It's not that. I want to remember it for me, not so I can beat myself up. I'm not lashing myself. I'm saying, if I'm going to be gracious to you when you're a poop to me, I'm going to have to remember that I have been horribly, infinitely more horrible to God. And I don't deserve to be able to look at you and go, I'm not going to forgive you. your are miserly little sin against me. I have no right to do that. And neither do you. Now, despite our agreement that Jesus died for our sins and that we need forgiveness like, everything else, like everyone else, we often don't have our debt clearly in mind when these three things are in play. One, where we conveniently or selfishly forget the number of sins we've committed today. Think about how easy it is to just kind of gloss over your whole day. And if you don't take a moment to pray daily, like we said last week, for your daily bread, to daily go... Father, forgive me for my sins so I can forgive others. We are called to pray daily, confess our sins, to simply recognize that we don't have any right any day to be really harsh with others. There's also a possibility that we've blissfully or foolishly been unaware of the number of sins we've committed over our lifetime. We just kind of are numb to them. And I would say, asking or daring to ask a loved one, a spouse, A friend, where do you see areas of my life that are probably displeasing to God, according to Scripture? I'm pretty sure they'll help you with the comprehensive list if you'll ask them. It's not hard for others to compile that list for us. It might be our pride disabling us from doing that. And then thirdly, we've wishfully or ignorantly imagined that sins of commission and sins of omission are not equal in God's sight. What I mean by that is that there are folks who, because they have been in the Christian church their whole life, or because temperamentally they're given more to just be compliant people, or because their personality is such that they're just not going to be compulsive, they could tend to think that they haven't really committed any sins recently. But what I would like to point out is that Not doing anything wrong doesn't say you've done anything right. I'm a college professor and I regularly give quizzes and exams. Do you know that someone can refuse to answer any of the questions and correctly say, I did not answer any of these questions wrongly? That is a truism. You can say, you know what, I haven't failed because I didn't answer anything incorrectly. And that's true because... There's nothing wrong on the paper, but you haven't done anything right. You haven't done anything, you haven't answered anything. You haven't gotten any of the answers correct. You still failed the exam. And people who aren't as naturally or temperamentally given to active sins of disobedience can often falsely get a sense of self-righteousness. But making a a, a comprehensive inventory of our sins and, and that daily... Would require that we consider all of the things we didn't do today, along with the things that we did do, all of the people we ignored, all of the selfless, all of the selfish words of discouragement we offered, and maybe all of the selfless words of encouragement we didn't offer. All of the resources at our disposal that we selfishly withheld from giving. Back in the day, we used to balance our checkbook. Well, some used to balance their checkbook. I found it to be awful, and so I ignored the practice as much as possible. Uh, my theory was if there were more if there were checks, I clearly had money in the bank, so write them. Um, now, with the lovely electronic internet banking, you are effectively forced to see what your daily balance is. I mean, it's brutal. It's helpful. But boy, I didn't realize just how much money I was kind of fretting away. When you look at your like visa bill online and it's got like what you bought today with your visa, it makes it a whole lot more difficult to just keep piling up the debt, doesn't it? We easily roll up debt by being blissfully ignorant of spending. And many of us very easily can slide into self-righteous by just never taking an inventory of just how sinful we are have been? And what is the totality of debt that Jesus has forgiven for us? We have not kept that debt clearly in mind. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 32 and 33, the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the second thought I have for you today is this, our total freedom is not clear in our minds. Our total debt is clearly not in mind, but our total freedom is not clear in our minds. Some of us don't understand that we've been totally forgiven. And in Christ, that's what frees you to look down into the abyss of all of those things we've done to harm others, because you don't have to fear judgment. Because you can actually take a self-evaluation and go, man, that's hard to hear. But thank God he forgave me in Christ. The story continues in verse 26 of Matthew 18. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Legally speaking, financial debt that is forgiven cannot be reinstated later. To put it this way, I can't draw up a certified legal contract that is signed under no duress notarized in the presence of a witness, one that says, the money you owe me is now forgiven and I no longer hold you liable, and then come back a year later and go, psych! Once it's done, it's done. It's forgiven. And this is what has happened in Christ. One big problem for many of us is the inability to believe that our sins really are completely Totally forgiven. You are completely free from any judgment that would come, what would be due those sins. When I've taught this passage before and used analogies like this, some would ask me, What happens if God forgives your past sins, but you go and sin all over again? Now, this is thinking that is fairly prevalent in churches. Uh, where the gospel isn't taught very clearly, and I don't know what kind of church you grew up in, uh, but more than likely if you grew up in a church and didn't understand the gospel, you, you you probably had this thought process in your mind, that for a sin to be forgiven, it must be recounted, confessed, and turned from before God would or could forgive it. Now, what this means is that in some religious traditions, people are constantly having to confess their sins, not because they recognize they are displeasing to God, which would be appropriate, but because they fear dying before confessing a sin. I mean, they literally fear that, okay, okay, I confess my sin. Now, I've got, I'm good. And if I happen to die on the way home, I'm covered. The, the idea would be that if you had committed a sin and you hadn't talked to God about it, that when you'd stand before him and he would like settle accounts with you, that you'd be in danger. This is not what the gospel is talking about. Jesus has said that on the cross, he died for your sins, past, present, and future. You see, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have foreknowledge. They knew before all eternity, let alone before Jesus died to physically pay for the sins of everyone who would ever believe on 30, in 33 AD that you and I weren't even born. We hadn't even sinned yet and Jesus had already prepaid for all of your sins. He knew in advance who was going to trust him. He knew in advance who he was going to enable to understand the gospel and believe. He knew in advance who he was going to renew so that they could respond to the gospel. Jesus is the one who has completely and totally paid for our sins. Yes, we confess our sins to God, but we don't do that for fear that we're going to go to hell if we die between now and whenever we'd have a chance to forgive. We do it because we're in relationship with God. We actually have fellowship with His Holy Spirit in us. We grieve Him, and like your family relationships, if you want those things to be at peace and you want those things to be chilling so to speak you really want to be enjoying your relationship with God you're going to have to be able to say God I blew it again I'm sorry I confess this to you and he's faithful and just and will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness but that's because Jesus has already died for your sins Romans 5 6 through 10 says this while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly Shall we be saved by his life? Friends, our sins are so many, we couldn't pay them off by good works, even if we wanted to. The gospel is that Jesus' life is worth immeasurably more than all of the lives of everyone who has ever lived. So his sacrifice was sufficient to not only pay your sins, but the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And on the cross, Jesus was dying in our place once for all, so that we would be able to rest secure that our debts were settled. And seeing this is key to forgiving others. Our total freedom from judgment must be clear in our mind. We have to recollect that we have been forgiven much, but we also have to be able to rest secure that that debt has been paid. First John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. My wife and I have some things in common with my parents. Uh, my father's name is John, his first name, and I'm, my first name is John. I'm John Charles, he's John Edward. Uh, my uh, wife's name is Carolyn M. Ryer. My mom's name is Carol M. Ryer. Uh, we both couples met on the only blind dates we ever went on. So it gets freakier as we talk about it longer and longer. This all occurred to me once when we, when we moved back to our hometown after seminary. Uh, we didn't have any kids. We were living with my parents while we were getting, uh, while we were getting ready to buy our first home. And uh, I had to go to the bank, and we happened to bank at the same institution. And this is back before cybersecurity was actually a concern And so you walked up to the teller, and I said, yes, I'd like to get some money out of my account. And she asked me for my name and my driver's license. And she went through and said, John Ryer. I said, you, absolutely. She gave the address. I was living with my parents. I gave them that address. And then she asked me, and I promise this is true, how much of the five figures in the checking account we wanted to withdraw. This is when I knew there had been a mistake, Because the only time in my life that Carolyn and I have had five figures in our checking in account is when you count the zeros after the decimal, you know? (laughs) And so I said, no, 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 that's my parents. Now imagine, this is the early 90s. This is how banking was just 20-something years ago. Pretty frightening when you think about it. I don't have the means that my father has And friends, our actions on our behalf are not enough to cover our debt of sin, but Jesus' sacrifice more than covers the tab. Our Father, by sacrificing His Holy Son, has more than forgiven everything we could ever imagine. These realities are supposed to inform our daily existence, which in turn compels us to make the determination to forgive those who've trespassed Against us. Compared to the debt of sin. Which God has forgiven us. The totality. Of the sins we feel entitled. To punish others over. Is a piddly sum. We the children of God. Through finding daily life. And prayer and intimacy. With our heavenly father. Are now taught to pray. Forgive us Lord. As we forgive those. Who have sinned against us. Brennan Manning said this, quote, God calls his children to a countercultural lifestyle of forgiveness in a world that demands an eye for an eye and worse. But if loving God is the first commandment and loving our neighbor proves our love for God, and if it is easy to love those who love us, then loving our enemies must be the filial badge that identifies Abba's children. As we come to the communion table this morning, I want to encourage you to take a decent inventory of the things you need to confess to the Father. Not because you're going to be judged guilty if you're a Christian. That judgment has already taken place. Jesus was judged guilty for your sins. But because the Father wants to restore fellowship with his children and the table... The communion table is actually just that. It's a means, it is a picture of this restoration. When Jesus actually celebrated the Lord's Supper for the first time, it was he and his disciples reclining at the table. It was a meal amongst friends. It was the Passover religious supper together, and he's inviting you into that kind of fellowship, but that kind of fellowship requires a genuine kind of honesty, and it's an honesty if you're a Christian you don't need to be afraid of Because he's already paid the price for your sins. So you can, with great humility, just cough it all up. Why would you hide it from God? He already knows. And why would you need to? He's already paid for it. He wants you to come to terms with that today. Because unless we do, the likelihood that we'll forgive others is pretty slim. We will be the unmerciful servant.